<clears throat> we're talking about a subject that everybody wants to talk about this morning. So it'll be good. We'll get there. Um, you know, one of the, the, the emotional life um, of a human being is a complicated thing. Anybody notice that? <laughs> Anybody experience that? Emotional life can be a little bit complicated sometimes. And it's because we are capable of so many emotions, and there are so many factors that influence our emotions, both externally and internally. Uh, in a given day, and sometimes even in a given moment, we can have multiple influences pressing on us that fire off different emotions within us. Right? We can feel a mix of joy with this tinge of sadness. We can feel excitement and apprehension at the same time. We can have feelings of loneliness and yet desire to remain alone. Right? We can move from contentment to discontentment and back again and so on. And all of this and so much more can happen in a single day and sometimes multiple times a day. The emotional life of a human being is complicated. And when we are living our life as us being the highest authority, as many people in the world who have a naturalistic worldview live, believing that there's no higher authority than themselves, then you can, to some extent, determine how long and how much you entertain an emotion. You get to dictate your responses. We see so many people, hopefully not in the church, though it happens in the church, who hold grudges. I get to determine how long I'm going to hold on to that grudge. It's up to me. That should happen in the world. That shouldn't happen in Jesus' church. But it does. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus, it means that you have surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus. And out of an overflow of his goodness and out of an overflow of his love for us, he will ask us to surrender our emotions to him. That he may be lord of our emotional life in the same way that he must become lord of all of our life. And what this means, to some extent, as a follower of Jesus, is that your emotional life becomes more complicated in Christ. You ever think about that? It actually becomes more complicated in Christ because we, we are to allow Jesus to influence how we navigate and how we respond to our emotions. And that can be difficult for us. Let's be honest. It's difficult at times because our natural responses and the emotions that our flesh like to entertain can often be found in opposition to what is Christ-like and what is godly. Can anybody attest to that? Right? Anybody willing to say, yeah, that's true this morning? Our emotions can be found to be in opposition to what is loving to both God and loving to people. And our emotions can also be found to be in opposition to ultimately 
what is good for us, especially if we linger on certain emotions for too long. And anger is one of those emotions. Anger is addressed a good amount in Scripture. And I think it's because it is one of the hardest feelings for us to experience well and bring under Jesus' authority. Because I, I don't know about you, but when I'm angry, the last desire is to, to be restrained. Right? Like when you're angry, the last thing you want is like, oh, I just, I really want Jesus to come and restrain me right now. No, I don't. I want to be completely unrestrained and just step into that anger sometimes. Right? Anger is not easily paired with the fruit of the Spirit. Anger is not easily paired with self-control. Anger is not easily paired with gentleness. Anybody have that kind of anger? Like when I'm angry, I get so gentle. Like it doesn't go well together, right? Yet handling our anger well as followers of Jesus is important because it is one of the most detrimental emotions that we experience, and especially if we entertain it for the wrong reasons or entertain it for too long. Paul addresses anger in Ephesians 4, as one of those defining areas that emphasizes the difference between the old self and the new self that we become in Christ. There is an old way of walking in anger, and there is a new way to walk. And since we've established over previous weeks that we are a new creation in Jesus Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to put on that new self, right? We've talked about that, that we are a new creation, and now we have to put it on. Paul describes it like putting on clothing. That means our new self in Christ should be visible to other people. We have very real choices to make that either reflect the new self or reflect the old self that was crucified with Christ. And one of those choices that we have to make is how we are going to deal with our anger. You know, the the thing is, Paul doesn't say, as a new creation, that you won't be angry. Hallelujah. Right? Paul doesn't say you won't be angry. Paul expects that there are going to be times that we are angry. There are times where anger is actually good. We're going to see that in a moment. Paul says, be angry. Right? He doesn't say, don't be angry. He says, be angry. Yet at the same time, Paul says, don't let your anger remain for too long. And so there's a good anger and there's a sinful anger. And we have to be able to discern between the two. And we also need to have the wisdom about how to handle our good anger or what is often called and known as righteous anger. Right? Because something that begins as righteous anger can turn to sinful anger if we allow it to remain for too long. And sinful anger, church, it is a monster. Like, sinful anger is a monster that will absolutely destroy you if you allow it. And the reason is because ultimately sinful anger is rooted in pride. 
It is rooted in ego. And anything that's rooted in pride and anything that is rooted in ego is in opposition to God, and therefore it is not good. Anger is a big problem in our world. It is a huge problem in our world. Especially in the last few years. Like the world just feels like it's so angry. It has increased exponentially in the last like four years. And the sad thing is, church, it's not just the world. It's followers of Jesus too. Followers of Jesus have been affected by a rise of anger as well. And, and there's this, been this increase of festering anger in Jesus' church. And one of the bad fruits of that anger is that it increasingly pits the people of God against the world in this completely non-redemptive way. Like followers of Jesus, we will be at odds with the world. We will always be at odds with the world. Because in Christ, we no longer belong to the world. But though we're at odds with the world, it is largely so that our light may shine in the world so that people will see our Father in heaven. Right? So we are to live different from the world for the sake of the world. We are to live different from the world, not to condemn the world. That's not our job. That's Jesus' job. We live different from the world in order to reconcile people unto Christ. That they may see Him through us, see something different, see a better way, and go, I want what you have. Unfortunately, as anger in the church grows, what happens is Christians separate from the world in this non-redemptive way having this willingness to just kind of sit back and watch the world burn. And it's wrong. It's wrong. It's an attitude that is pharisaical. That kind of anger, that kind of disposition needs to be called out as ungodly and as sinful and as worldly. Because we must remember, and Jesus just has this way of doing these things because Nick decided to go to 1 Corinthians this morning, and that's exactly where I was going. We have to remember, considering the world, so were some of us. Like, that was me. Right? So how dare we ever have a pharisaical, kind of judgmental view toward people? in a way that is non-redemptive. I'm not saying we're not called to judge. I'm not saying we're not called to have discernment. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear that. I'm saying if your judgment is non-redemptive, it's sinful. Men. Can I just have a show of hands if you're a man in here? Did every, did every man put your hand up? I don't think so either. They're like, oh no, what's coming? I'm not here. Men, we have to be honest that anger is a big problem for men. We just have to be honest with that. 
Men are more likely to struggle with anger than women. Not saying women don't, but it fires off in men much quicker. Now, I was at a conference yesterday. And one of the questions that they asked to an entire room of 450 men was, do you or have you struggled with anger? You want to know how many men stood up in that room? Quite a lot. Like I'd say about 70% probably stood up. And I guarantee it's the same across the board. Men struggle with anger. Anger is a big problem. If you just have a, a moment of honesty before the Lord, anyone in here feel like you've gotten a bit more angry over the last several years? I see that hand, Jamie. Then look at Gina. Boom. Yeah, it's coming, it's coming back down. It's coming down? That's good. So we have to talk about this. And so let's pray and let's talk about this. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that your word is living, that your word is active, that your Holy Spirit is at work in your people. Father, we recognize that anger is a problem, not just in the world, it's a problem in the church. And sinful anger puts us at odds with you. And we don't want to be found there. So Lord, I ask that you would do a work in our hearts today. Father, that you would give us a peace that leads us away from anger. A rest in you. Help us to walk in that new creation that we are, Lord. Not in our strength, but in the strength of the Spirit within us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 26 to 27, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And so just remember that Paul is, is writing this command in relation to the exhortation that he gave in Ephesians 4, 22 to 23, right? To, to put off the old self and put on the new self. So Paul's saying, listen, there should be a difference between the anger that we used to experience as someone who lived in the futility of our minds, as he said, lived with deceitful desires, and the anger that we experience in Christ as someone who is now a new creation, no longer living in deceit, but knowing the truth and walking in the peace of God. And what Paul's doing actually in verse 26 is he is quoting an Old Testament verse. He's actually quoting Psalm 4. And so I want to begin in Psalm 4 to get the context of what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. Psalm 4 is written by King David. And it's a psalm that addresses a hardship that David was going through in which he was distressed over his enemies coming against him. And in the psalm, David begins by addressing God, and he acknowledges God as the God of his righteousness, which is a title that recognizes the justness of God, that he is the one who justifies David, but he is also the one who brings justice to every situation. So David is showing a trust in the Lord that he will bring justice to the situation that he's facing with his enemies. And then in verse 4 of the psalm, David actually turns his attention to his enemies and addresses them directly. He says in verse 4 and verse 5, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. 
So in these verses, David is giving a warning to his enemies. That's nice. He was giving them a warning that they should be careful in their anger toward him so that their anger would not give over to sin and to evil. And the reason for David's warning with them is because, listen, God is with David. So he's saying, listen, if if you come against me in sinful anger, you're not just coming against me. You're going to be opposing God, and God will oppose you. So don't let your anger lead to sinful actions. And so David instructs them to do something instead. He says, ponder in your hearts on your bed. David's basically saying, why don't you go home? Why don't you get in bed and just think about what you're going to do? Kind of like what I say to my kids. Why don't you just go have a moment and just think about what you just did? And so David's giving them a warning. Why don't you just, just think about it before you act? And then David gives them the answer that they should come to if they think about it clearly. He says, be silent. Here's your response. Be silent. That's the right response because their anger was sinful. They were coming against David sinfully and they weren't justified in doing so. And so David directs them to do what he has done instead. Be silent and put your trust in the Lord. And the point of David's exhortation to trust in the Lord is that it would restrain them from sin if they were properly trusting God. So David is giving a very important principle for life, that when you trust in the Lord, your anger will diminish. Your sinful anger will diminish because you no longer feel like you have to defend yourself. You no longer feel like you have to get riled up. The Lord will do that on my behalf. And then David expands on this at the end of the psalm saying that he's put his trust in the Lord. And as a result of that trust that he has in God, guess what he can do? He's at peace. He can lie down and he can go to sleep. Anybody ever been so angry you just couldn't sleep? You're in bed? right? Maybe you've had an argument with your spouse and your spouse is just like fast asleep next to you and you're like, oh, really? Right? Glad you can sleep. You're just fuming. It was like, put your trust in the Lord. You won't lose sleep. So what he's saying to us is a principle that we can use for our lives. He's saying, listen, when you're angry, take time and think about why you're angry. And what is the right response to that anger? And if it's sinful anger, the best thing you can do, remain silent. Do nothing. Put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in the one who is righteous, the one who justifies. It's his responsibility to bring justice in every situation. So trust him. And when you do that, listen, you'll have peace. You'll be able to lay your anger down. You'll be able to lie down and you'll be able to sleep because anger won't consume you. And so this is where Paul is pulling from, from Psalm 4. And Paul takes that, and then he teaches something similar in the New Testament with some slight variations in the language that he uses. So I just want to unpack it in three parts this morning. Part number one is that there is a time to be angry. That's where we're going to start. Part one, there is a time to be angry. That's the first thing that we see that Paul asserts, that anger is not always wrong. Paul says, be angry. 
So there is a space where you can be angry and it not be sinful. And in fact, there may be some spaces where it would actually be sinful for you not to be angry. You ever think about that? There's actually times in life where it would be sinful not to be angry. Let me give you an example. Men. Uh Uh-oh. You're like, why are you picking on us this morning? There is a difference between men responding in sinful anger and men responding passively to situations. Both are a problem. Both are sinful. And men can land on both sides. Sometimes when we just need to keep our mouth shut, we fire off with the sinful anger. And sometimes when we really need to speak up, we sit back and we're quiet. Neither are what we're called to as godly men. So there may be times where to not be angry is actually sinful. What I think we can admit is the human heart is not that great at discerning good and sinful anger sometimes. And so is there a way that we can know when anger is righteous? And we certainly have help in discerning that. Because we have an example to follow that represents righteous anger, what it looks like, and his name is Jesus. There were times in Jesus' ministry where he was angry. And I just want to show you three times that we see Jesus angry in the Gospels. There may have been more, but these are the three that came to my mind this week as I was preparing. Time number one is when Jesus cleanses the temple in John chapter 2. We see in John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He wasn't making a whip of cords to just kind of like tickle people. He was angry, right? And so he makes a whip of cords, and it says he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus is a little bit angry here about what's happening in his father's house. That's time number one. Time number two is when Jesus declares woes upon the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. It says, starting in verse 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Wow. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. It's like one of those tongue lashings that you get from like your mom or dad when you're a kid. You know, I remember that one. Time number three is when he heals a blind man's hand on the Sabbath. Mark 3, verse 1 to 6, says again, He entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. 
And he said to him, is it lawful, or said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So we see these examples of Jesus in the Gospels of when he is angry. We see a couple reasons in these examples of why Jesus is angry that gives us a clue as to what righteous anger is. And we also see an important element to Jesus' anger that lets us know an element that should be present in our anger when it is righteous. So reason number one that Jesus is angry is he is angry over people who dishonor the character of God. John 2 says, zeal for your house will consume me. So God's house or God's temple represents God's character. And how it is being treated by people is an expression of their honor and their respect for God. Right, like someone walks into your house. Can you imagine someone walks into your house and they just tear your house apart, knock everything around, just leave everything in shambles? Would you say, oh, that person really respected me? No. So you know, that person disrespected me. And so Jesus sees people disrespecting God's house and he recognizes it's because they're disrespecting the character of God. God. They are distorting who he is. They are misrepresenting him, and it makes Jesus angry. The second reason we see that Jesus is angry is he is angry at injustice that skews people's ability to see and enter into the kingdom of God. You look at those woes in Matthew 23. Woe to you, you Pharisees. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't enter and you don't allow others to enter. Do not get in the way of those coming to God. Jesus will be angry, right? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary. And here's the Pharisees and the scribes making it impossible for people to come to God. And we see the same thing in Mark 3. Jesus is angry at the hardness of heart of people. And it's keeping them from seeing the truth. It's keeping them from seeing who God is, knowing what he is actually right. And so we can conclude, first of all, that righteous anger is going to be angry that or anger that makes or things that make God angry. That's clear. Righteous anger is things that make God angry. And it is motivated by a zeal for God and a care for others. If you're missing one or the other, it's not going to be righteous anger. Because the Pharisees had a zeal for God, but they didn't care about others. You need to have both a zeal for God, and a care for other people. And that's how you know you're walking in righteous anger. Now, I want to make another observation that we can see there because in Mark 3, we see something that's mingled in with Jesus' anger that I think is so key to us making sure our anger is righteous. He says in Mark 3, 5, 
he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And I think that is so important. Because he was angry because he was grieved. Other translations say he felt sorrow. He was feeling sorry for them. He felt grief over their situation. And so Jesus' anger is mixed with sorrow. It is mixed with grief. It is mixed with compassion. So if your anger is mixed with grief, if it is mixed with sorrow, it means that it's coming from this place of compassion for other people, not pride, not your ego. You're looking at something, you're going, God, I'm so angry over that, and it breaks my heart because it's affecting that person, and they can't see it. That's righteous anger. We must compare that now to the anger of man. Because James says in verse 20 of chapter 1, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if righteous anger is produced from compassion, if it is produced from this injustice that we see, from this care of others and this zeal for God, then the anger of man is produced by our own hurt feelings. The anger of man is produced from our own slighted pride and our own ego. One commentator writes, Christians must be sure that their anger is not just an expression of personal provocation or wounded pride. The anger of man, ultimately at its root, is all about me all about me. It's sinful. You know, if we read James, if we add verse 19 in there, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So James says, follower of Jesus, be slow to anger. Why does he say that? I think James says that because here's what we have to understand. If anger arises in you quickly, it's likely not godly anger. That's what we have to understand. If in a moment it's just this flash of anger like some of us get, probably not godly anger. Because James says, be slow to anger. Godly anger is slow. Godly anger is restrained. Godly anger is focused. Godly anger is articulate. It is thoughtful. It is compassionate. Prideful anger lashes out in a moment of hurt and a moment of pride. And so we should be aware. How are we responding? When we're angry, if it's just this flash probably sinful. If it's this sustained, slow anger, that may be godly anger. Right? Because 
what often happens is our response is, I'm hurt, so I need to hurt. That's sinful anger. I'm hurt, so I need to hurt you back. Or you hurt me, so I have to reassert myself to level the playing field. That's godly anger. Or that's, no, sorry, that's sinful anger. Yikes. Sinful anger is always concerned about your position. So there is a time to be angry. And then, number two, Paul says, there's an amount of time to be angry. (laughs) So there's a proper time to be angry, but there's also this proper amount of time to be angry because Paul says, be angry and don't sin. So how do we keep righteous anger from being sinful? Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So what Paul is warning us about here is it's not just sinful anger that's dangerous. It's not just sinful anger that's going to trip you up. It can be righteous anger that you hold on to for too long and allow to turn into sinful anger. Because even what is righteous anger can be turned and can be perverted when we entertain it for too long. When we do that, Paul says, we give an opportunity to the devil. Because here's the thing. Anger, even if it's righteous, as you think about it and as you focus on it and as you fester in it, it starts to foster this spirit of pride and it will start to eventually foster this spirit of hatred towards the other person. So your anger may begin as a righteous provocation to a wrong, but if it's allowed to be held onto as a grievance, it will lead to negative thoughts, it will lead to negative words, and it will lead to negative actions. You know, John Piper, he uses uh, this great illustration I like. He says, anger is a moral equivalent to adrenaline. What does he mean by that? He says, adrenaline is good in reaction to situations, right? We need adrenaline. When we're in danger, we need it to fire off so that we can respond accordingly. But constant adrenaline running through us actually damages the heart. It's the same thing with anger. The way that prolonged adrenaline damages your heart physically, prolonged anger damages your heart morally and spiritually. So we got to keep it to a short period of time. And how do we do that? How do we keep it from lingering? How do we keep that from happening? And it goes back to Psalm 4, trusting in God. 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If anyone had a right to anger, it was Jesus. And Peter says, Listen, when he was reviled, when he was hated, he didn't give it back in return. When he suffered, when he was threatened, when he was beaten, he didn't threaten back. 
Jesus could have, and it's a lot scarier than any threat you're going to give. But he didn't. It says he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. And that's what you and I have to walk in. Paul says, as we close, Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Heavenly Father, I know that there are people in here this morning who absolutely struggle with anger. It's just the reality. And Father, I pray that you would speak to their hearts this morning. Father, that you would give all of us wisdom to know what is righteous anger and what is sinful anger that we would be able to entrust our hearts to you and know that even when we are wronged, even when we are reviled, you are a righteous judge. That you will judge justly in the end. We must just trust you. And Father, help us to walk in the peace of Christ. Help us to walk in fruits of the Spirit, in gentleness, in goodness, in self-control. Father, help us as followers of Christ, and especially the men in here, help us to know when we are to stand up and fight, and when we are to remain silent. Because you need godly men who are willing to fight, and you need godly men who know when to remain All of that wisdom will come from you. So may we be in your presence. May you teach us what it is to be more like Christ. And Father, may we lay down pride. May we lay down ego that wants to fire off when we're wrong, that wants to reassert ourselves, that wants to take control of a situation. And instead remain silent entrusting ourselves to you. Help us to practice this, Lord, knowing that we will fail. We will have to confess our sin. We will have to get back up and we will have to try again. But you have promised that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And as we partner with you in our sanctification, you will make us more and more like Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we would never just be like, oh, this is just who I am. I'm just angry. No. No, it's not who we are in Christ. Declare that is absolutely untrue in Jesus' name. We have the fruit of the Spirit. Help us to walk in that. In your name.